first time at seven o'clock. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen. Hey, welcome back to our study of Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And uh, we've been at this for quite a few years now. And uh, we're coming down to the last few reflections. We only have two after this. Uh, so with the coming of the new year, we'll be starting uh, some new material. Uh, after Guardini, I've been thinking about using uh, an oratorian, uh, Father Faber. And uh, he's fairly well known, mostly known for his hymns, beautiful hymns, but less known for his writings, although they're, they're very beautiful. Uh, I think he's a little bit overshadowed by Carl Newman, uh, but uh, he's written some wonderful works on uh, the Eucharist, Precious Blood, but also on the spiritual life. And uh, even though I do other groups on the spiritual life, quite a few, actually, uh, I thought I might use his spiritual conferences uh, because they focus on certain elements of the spiritual life that we typically don't think about. And uh, he starts the book with three of his most well-known essays, and the first is on kindness. And I think in a day and age when there's a lack of kindness, it might be good for us to spend quite a bit of time with that. And uh, you know, it's a fundamental attitude of the Christian and how we engage others. So, uh, but I think it'll be uh, a refreshing turn for us after uh, sort of the intense focus on Guardini's uh, reflections and uh, let us switch things up for a little while and also bring in an oratorian dimension, which would be nice for us here. But tonight uh, we're on uh, a reflection called the Eucharist and Truth. And we began discussing this a little bit the last time in the sense that Christ had been discussing discussing with his disciples, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, about his real presence within the Eucharist. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And uh, so the emphasis on Guardini's lectures were on exactly that, what Christ was saying, the uh, lack of ambiguity, in other words, in Christ's words, that he truly does give himself to us in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and then last week we looked at uh, a little reflection in entitled uh, The Eucharist and an Encounter, that it's not simply an object that we are receiving that is parceled out to us, but it's an encounter with, with Christ himself, the person of Christ. Uh, and uh, so we don't want to sort of fall into objectifying the Eucharist. And tonight's uh, discussion takes us a little leap forward, the Eucharist in truth. And I, I found this to be an incredibly powerful reflection because what he's telling us here is it's not only that we re receive Christ as our, our life uh, and receiving him in the Eucharist, but we are also drawn into the fullness of the truth that is, is spoken to us through the Holy Scriptures. And so we are able to perceive and comprehend the truth that is revealed to us uh, through Christ's actions and through his words, and especially the words that we hear proclaimed at the Mass, this we receive in the Holy Eucharist. We receive the truth that we just uh, listened to and heard proclaimed and preached, and we receive it in such a way that we're able to enter into that truth in a very deep way, which tells us something person, that our, something important, that our understanding of the truth of Christianity is not just through the use of our reason and intelligence, but rather through this personal encounter with he who is truth. 
And insofar as we try to approach Christianity in an overly notional fashion, where we're approaching it uh, simply uh, by analyzing the gospel text, we're always going to fall short. Uh, if you remember, I've mentioned St. Philip Neri at times saying, in terms of preparing for preaching, uh, that we learn more from scripture on our knees than from books, that Philip knew and understood what Guardini is going to be discussing with us here tonight, that we, we learn more about the scriptures, the truth that is revealed to us on our knees by engaging in that vital relationship with Christ, not just through studying the scripture or making use of commentaries. The greatest commentary for us is the person of Christ. He who is the truth. And as we enter into that communion with him, we are drawn more and more deeply into this divine truth that is, has been revealed to us. And that's something important for us because I think often, especially living in a university community, we can approach Christianity, uh, the very text of, of our faith, the scriptures, in a very academic fashion. In fact, in seminary, often this is part of the education, how to do an exegesis paper, make use of commentaries, sort of pull the scriptures apart, look at the Greek text and the, the meaning of Greek words, which is all fine, it's all well and good. Uh, but in terms of living the Christian faith, or especially as a priest in terms of preaching the gospel, the lived vital relationship with Christ is something that's far more important. What we encounter there is far more than we could ever encounter through our own study. That it is in this intimate relationship, this communion with he who is truth, that we come to comprehend what is revealed to us in the fullest measure. And uh, so as we go to Mass, this should be part of our preparation, that we study the scriptures beforehand that are going to be proclaimed. We listen to them with this kind of intensity, and we listen to them then being proclaimed. But we also are preparing ourselves prior to Mass uh, through going to confession, deep prayer, and uh, in, in such a way that then when we enter into and receive Holy Communion, that we are able to receive that truth in receiving Him. That there's no impediment to our coming to understand what He desires us to understand and comprehend. And so as always, we're going to start with just a little red print that's in italicized. Uh, the italicized section here. It's just my little bit of a commentary, and then we'll go right into Guardini's writing. And as always, I'll stop after a paragraph or so, and if you have any questions or comments, feel free uh, to bring them in. So the Eucharist and truth. Our participation in Mass and reception of the Holy Eucharist can never remain sentimental piety or become something impersonal and magical. Guardini seeks to help us understand the reality of Christ present in the Eucharist and a living and vital relationship with him are inextricable, inextricably tied together. Thus our relationship with Christ, Guardini tells us, must be a communion in truth. Christ's essence must be conveyed to us. Must, we must appreciate his uniqueness, his attitude toward life, his work, and his identity. And so we, we always approach the truth that is proclaimed to us in the scriptures uh, in a receptive, with a receptive mentality, that something is being made known to us, communicated 
to us, not only audibly in what we hear, but in the Eucharist that we receive. And so it's always with a kind of humble spirit that we are, are to approach our hearing of the Word of God as proclaimed to us. Uh, we don't sit back and judge, judge it or analyze it so much as we humbly prepare the mind and the heart to receive the Word that is proclaimed to us. And then more importantly, to receive the Word made flesh as it comes to us in the Holy Eucharist. And that's when the truth opens up for us, the truth that God desires us to see and comprehend about himself, his attitudes, his, his teachings. Absent this, our relations with him will be incomplete. Upon receiving him in the Eucharist, we must not lose sight of the fact that Christ is also the truth. He is the incarnate Logos, God's message written in flesh and blood. His self-offering is revelation. To receive him is to receive truth. Our nourishment in the Eucharist is eternal truth, and we must recognize this, otherwise it profits us nothing. Guardini warns the sacred texts of the Mass are a clue to Christ's identity and some facet of his personality or truth, some event in his life that comes forward to be understood and accepted. Each is a ray of that truth which will be present at the consecration no longer in word, but in his real existence. This is of primary importance to us because piety has a tendency to neglect the truth, sliding into fantasy, sentimentality, and exaggeration. So if we aren't able to see this personal connection with Christ, and that it's not simply that we're receiving an idea but we're receiving he who is truth itself, he who is meaning. If you remember uh, Pope Benedict XVI defined logos, one of his meaning, possible meanings, meanings is meaning. So it is meaning became flesh. This is what we receive in, in the Holy Eucharist. So what we receive in the Holy Eucharist is far more than we can gain ever simply from hearing something or reading it in a book far more than what a priest could preach to us from the pulpit, which is probably a big relief to many of you here, that our understanding of the truth of the gospel is not dependent upon how excellent the, the, preach, the priest preaches or the, the eloquence of his homilies. If that were true, we'd probably be in a world of hurt uh, in terms of our, our understanding of Christ or the image that we might have of him within our minds and our hearts. It's another thing to say, though, that what we hear proclaimed, we receive when we receive the Holy Eucharist. And so that truth enters into our, our very being. We carry it within us. And so that takes us, we leap forward there and our understanding of things. It's not dependent on the strength or the power of our intellect. It's rather dependent upon the grace that God gives to us and our own purity of heart that allows us to see and comprehend that truth with a kind of clarity. And so if we prepare ourselves in the way that Bordini told us from the beginning of his meditations, if we have a certain composure of spirit, we have solitude in our life, silence, we have a deep prayer life, we seek to live a life of virtue, uh, we open ourselves then, not only to hear the word of God as it's proclaimed to us, but to receive that truth into our very being, to enter into a communion 
with truth. That we are elevated then to this experience of, of union and communion with God. And no other faith could, can say that. That we enter into communion with truth. We are in union with truth when we receive the Holy Eucharist. And I, for, to be honest with you, I don't think many Catholics understand receiving the Holy Eucharist that way, or many priests understand it in that way. I think we have the tendency to stop at one point. We understand that there's something important that we receive in the Holy Eucharist. And we also, most of us would say, we understand that we receive Christ in the Eucharist. But sometimes we don't make this connection between the truth that we hear proclaimed and the Eucharist that we receive at the altar, that we are receiving that truth in the fullest possible measure. And I think this is why people get so angry when they hear a bad homily or whether they hear the same homily over and over again because they feel that they're being gypped in some way and they're, they're not hearing the word of God fully. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that. There is something extremely important in having the gospel preached well in order to even prepare people to receive the Holy Eucharist. But it's really in receiving the truth in, in this great gift that God has given to us that our greatest hope is to be found. That we're already being drawn into the intimacy of the Most Holy Trinity at this point. And so he says, if, if we don't get this, then our reception of the Holy Eucharist is never going to bear the fruit that it should for us. And that we risk falling into exaggeration, he says, fantasy, or we, uh, we're receiving the Eucharist simply becomes something magical for us. We're getting a shot of grace in some way to be given strength to endure life rather than, again, a union and communion. So it becomes sort of a, a mystical thing, but in the negative uh, use of that word, you know. Uh, fantastical, you know, kind of reality. Or we fall into a kind of sentimentality uh, in receiving the Eucharist, or, you know, this kind of emotional state that we're drawn into through receiving the Eucharist and understanding that we're entering into a communion with the Lord there. But again, that only takes us so far. You know, it takes us on the emotional level to understanding we're entering into this close relationship with Christ, not something that is distant to us or abstract, but real and concrete, but it still doesn't take us as far as what Bordini is talking about here, communion with the truth. I, I love the notion that it's, it's meaning itself. That's very powerful. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're, especially in an academic setting and really from our earliest years on, you know, this is, we are taught to analyze things in a certain way and uh, to pull them apart. And part of that is to help us understand them, di almost dissecting certain things in our mind to shrink them down in order that we can begin to grasp some aspect of that truth. But when we are talking about entering into uh, communion with he who is truth, the, the way that we approach this reality has to be something quite different. Like we don't dissect Christ, although many have tried to do so over the course of time, that we enter into, first of all, humbly, this relationship that we are drawn into by God's mercy, and that he has chosen 
to reveal himself to us in a particular way and to make himself known to us through certainly his revelation, but in the most powerful way in the communion that we share with him at the Holy Eucharist. That's where we move from the idea, the notion, to the reality itself within us. It's on the other hand. No? Okay. You must have an internal question there. I started. <laughs> okay. So Bardini will articulate more more fully here as we get into the text. But you get a general sense of where he's leading us here. So it's a pretty profound leap, even from what we've already looked at, which I thought was quite beautiful here over the last couple of weeks. The action of the Lord's memorial embraces several different but inseparable concepts. We've already discussed two, that of the meal and that of Christ's coming or our encounter with him. The Father offers the believer a vital being of his Son, the true bread. From the same Father, Christ steps into the congregation that is commemorating him and lovingly approaches each member. These are the concepts that determine the act of the Holy, of Holy Communion. The creature in us longs to be nourished by the abundant reality of the God-man who said, I am the life. The person in us watches, waits, hurries to meet the coming one, remains with him in the union of love and obedience. Behind both concepts, giving them their sacred significance, stands the tremendous fact of the redemptory sacrifice. So we await him who, who pours himself out for us on the cross. It is the Paschal mystery that we are being drawn into, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And we are waiting for our Lord to come to us, to engage us in and through this reality, in order to redeem us, to cleanse us from our sin, and also draw us into this relationship with God. That That is striking in and of itself. And that's what draws us to Mass and again and again, every weekend, sometimes every single day, because we realize that of all things that we do as human beings, this is the most important. If we were unable to do anything else in our life, if we were only able to go to Mass and receive Holy Communion, our life would be full. We would be lacking nothing. And yet, Bordini says, you know, there's something even, even more here that's offered to us. He goes on and says, and still we have not touched bottom. One more thought belongs here revelation and the pious recognition of divine truth. What does community with one with another person mean? Above all, it demands genuine mutual exchange, res respect for his person, trust, loyalty, that simultaneous unity and reverence known as friendship or comradeship or love. Such an alliance surpasses the merely physical or merely spiritual. And so, as human beings, we have some understanding of this, that in order to know another person, there is a kind of revelation that must take place. We reveal ourselves to the other person gradually, that allows a kind of intimacy to develop, uh, whether it's friendship, comradeship, 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 as he says, or love. You know, it certainly would be experienced in the, the fullest and most beautiful way in marriage, you know, where there is this radical commitment and the giving of the self to other, to the other. 
Because it rests on the will, it is capable of surviving the adversities to which all living things are exposed. But community has yet another element, the sharing of one another's power, radiance, vital depths, the ability to experience with the immediacy of sympathy and love the life of the other. These elements of community are essential and irreplaceable, but alone they still do not suffice. The relationship founded on them alone would have a blind spot. Between myself and the other, there must be also truth. His essence must be conveyed to me. I must appreciate his uniqueness, his attitude to life, his work and destiny. I must consent to his being as he is and make room for him as he is in my life. And I must know myself confirmed and accepted by him. Then our relationships will be complete, not before. So we can have a kind of blind spot, Bordini tells us, in our relationship with Christ, even as deep as it becomes in our reception of the Holy, Holy Eucharist that insofar as it's guided and directed by our own will and our own stepping towards this relationship and our own understanding of it, it brings us so far and it can even bring us through certain adversities in our life. We can have a deep commitment uh, to this reality and appreciation of it. Uh, but he tells us in that we still haven't reached the bottom. We haven't gone to the depths. It's only when we allow Christ to reveal himself, his very essence to us, everything about himself to us, that we are drawn into that communion in the deepest way possible. And so that, that's an extraordinary thing. It's saying that in God's self-revelation in his son, he makes his heart known to us. He gives us everything in his only begotten son. And through his teaching, through his actions, through his death on the cross, we begin to understand something of that relationship and are drawn into it. And, uh, and then when we receive the Holy Eucharist as well, we also realize that we're being drawn into uh, a kind of radical union with him. And that this is essential for our being able to experience the life that it gives us. Unless you eat my body, drink my blood, you have no life within you. Uh, but Gordini is saying that beyond this, then, we are meant to allow Christ to make himself known to us as he is and as he wills. That we can still keep parts of ourselves closed off to God and closed off to what he would make known to us, to our minds and our hearts, uh, that we have blind spots, as Guardini says, or sometimes we can have hard spots, uh, too, that we won't, that cannot be penetrated, that we put up almost as defenses. And we, I think we probably know this best in our relationship with other human beings, that we have certain blind spots about others even those that we know well, and perhaps even those that we're, those that you might be married to, that there are certain aspects of their personality, of who they are, the mystery of who they are as human beings, their very essence that remain hidden to us. So no, no matter how deep that relationship becomes, the mystery of the human person still remains that, a mystery. We can plumb the depths in a very deep way 
uh, given the nature of the relationship, that there is always this part that is sort of hidden from us because of our limitations. Or we have hard spots that because uh, of our lack of love or because of resentments that we hold in, in our hearts, we close ourselves up. Wounds that we've uh, born in our life that maybe haven't been built yet, we, we close ourselves up and harden our hearts and can't receive the fullness of that truth. And so in our relationship with God, we have to open, become as radically vulnerable to him as he becomes to us. And so opening ourselves as fully as, as we can, removing every impediment that we possibly can in order that we might receive what he wants to give us in its fullness. He wants to reveal himself to us, the truth of who he is, in such a way that it is lacking nothing. Now again, we might have a hard time wrapping our mind around that. What is it to understand God as he is, lacking nothing? To be introduced into the very essence of God himself, to be drawn into that reality. And of course, you know, we understand that this is only going to reach its fullness uh, uh, in, the, in the kingdom. But it's already something that we are entering into and have been invited into through our relationship with Christ through faith and through our reception of the Holy Eucharist. It might remain somewhat dark and obscure to us, seen through the eyes of faith, but nonetheless, we are already being drawn into this mystery. And this is what Guardini is saying, that we have to allow God to re reveal himself as he is. And this can be a difficult thing for us to do. When we look at some of the mystics within the Catholic tradition, in particular John of the Cross in mind, you know, he, he says this, we make this movement toward God in our spiritual life. We, we make use of all of our faculties as human beings. And so we take what has been revealed to us and what has been passed on through tradition, both through the scriptures and then the, the living reality of the church throughout the centuries. And we meditate upon these things, we engage in the ascetic life, all in order to penetrate that mystery more fully, to allow that what has been revealed to us to open up gradually before us. Uh, and yet, as beautiful as our reflections upon the passion might be, or the incarnation might be, they're always going to be limited by the limits of our own faculties. Our intellect and reason, our imagination is not, they aren't infinite. And so we might have this magnificent uh, understanding on, on a, a very human level, and even in some way elevated by grace of who Christ is and the meaning of the passion, yet uh, it, God calls us to allow him to draw us on, that we might encounter him as he is in himself, John of the Cross says. And so that means allowing ourselves to walk more and more along the path of faith, which John describes as a dark, obscure knowing, that while in this world, we can come to know God in the way that Guardini is saying here, by allowing ourselves to walk more and more along this path of faith, allowing God to reveal the truth of himself to us. But it means letting go 
of, in a sense, the faculties that have served us so well in the spiritual life and have even aided us in the faith and allowing ourselves to walk in that darkness of faith. And John says this is a very difficult and painful thing. He says it's like a ligature, a break. And we, we find ourselves walking without uh, any crutches and as if we're on shifting ground. And we, because we are allowing God to draw us into that dark, obscure knowing, the darkness of faith. We're allowing him to draw us forward and to reveal, shine a light in, into our hearts as he desires and as he desires to reveal himself to us. And so it was only in reading John the Cross that I think I began to understand faith a little bit more deeply because I often, in, in my mind, understood it as the very principles of our faith. You know, what we believe, you know, something that's creedal, you know, what our church teaches, or believing on some level, you know, holding in our my mind or my heart. But what John is saying is that there's something far more to, to this, that it's a, a gift of God. Uh, it's one of the theological virtues described as theological because it has God as its end. It leads us to God and an encounter with God. And so we are walking along this path of faith, this dark, obscure knowing, more and more deeply into this intimacy with God. Again, allowing him to reveal himself to us as he is in himself. And that means also our spiritual life, trying to let go of all the, the, the blind spots, the hard spots that we have, any impediment that we might have to God taking us along that path. That's why we go through the various stages of the spiritual life, the purgative stage where we seek to overcome our, our, our vices and, our, and grow in virtue, the illuminative stage where the grace of God becomes more and more active elevates us in our relationship with him, allows us to enter into that prayer of, of the quiet, of silence, where we are beginning to allow God to speak a word that is equal to himself, to finally the, the unitive stage, where we we are really being at that point drawn along by God, that this is purely a, a gifted kind of state that one is in, of contemplation. God is allowing us to see him without any hard spots or without any blind spots. So I know that was an aside, a digression, but I think it's going to, to help us uh, understand a little bit more of where Guardini is leading us here, specifically as it ties to the Eucharist. Any comments or questions so far? A little bit heavy, I know, so far, but it's interesting. So it should change forever our understanding of, of the Eucharist and how it is that we participate in Mass. And that, that's been the beauty of this little book. Because after you read through it, it's like, I can't go back to simply sitting in the pew. That I know that my mind and my heart has to be prepared in a certain way. And that as I'm participating in it, it means participating on these most profound levels of who I am as a human being and allowing God to transform me in such a way that I'm, I'm being drawn into a communion that he establishes in the way that he establishes. So it's not our work. You know, we participate in it, but 
It's not for us to make it exciting and engaging. You know, God has established this reality for us to of a relationship to be drawn into. And we can uh, make that experience as beautiful as possible through the, the music that we use, through our demeanor, our attitude, the, the church building itself. But we never want to lose sight that this is a graced moment for us. God has made possible. And that it's only God who can bring it to its fullest completion. Yes, right. Um, the line that uh, stuck out for me is um, between myself and the other there must be also truth and and it struck me in, in the context of our relationship with Christ that's being spoken about here but also with others and I don't know as I was like thinking about it the, the conclusion I'm coming to is that it's it's actually just like a very sad thing that there are going to be so few relationships in every life that are safe enough for there to be I mean truth also sort of demands the fullness of truth there's something about there's something lacking to a truth that isn't complete and entire like there could be an element of truth but there's something left out so it's actually not the wholeness of truth but there's just like so few relationships where that can actually happen in one's life and um I don't know maybe maybe that's all the more reason to pursue it in this one where there actually can be and where it could very potentially be the only relationship that's safe enough um, potentially but I think yeah. it is through our relations with others and in particular our parents you know if the relationships are the way that they're meant to be that that would be our first introduction to it it's there that uh, that we can have this kind of radical vulnerability little ch children can develop this trust in the love of their parents and they see the truth of that and so there's no impediment they can you know they know that their parents are going to be there if they cry or catch them when they fall you know all these things and so this is where we develop uh, those levels of trust and as well as our understanding of relationship and how important truth is to the development of that trust and how when that truth is absent trust is broken and it's very hard to be restored and again this is why the relationship with parents is so important uh, because it can affect then how a person enters into this relationship with God now God can overcome all things and certainly bring healing where and fullness where there where that was lacking, and uh, but ideally, you know, it is supposed to be our, our parents who have this experience of that reality themselves that become our first teachers in the faith, not just teachers of doctrine, but they show us how to love each other and how to establish trust to be truthful with with the other why it's important to be honest and not lie. You know, these are all the things we, that we learn about life when we are, are growing up. And, uh, and so you're right. And I, I think it, it is this relationship with God that can restore a lot that has been taken from us. You know, for those who have experienced trauma in their life, that it is often, I think, only in and through that relationship with God then that a self, a sense of self, of dignity, 
of love <coughs> is rest restored. You know, that part that feels like it's missing because of the absence of it growing up then is filled with this encounter with Christ, with he who is true. Who could fill the void in, in our life in any case? I mean, it's true when a spouse dies. There's no, nobody who's going to replace that spouse for them. You know, you never get over, as it were, the death of your husband or wife that you've been married to for 50, 60 years. And to tell a person, oh, you know, a couple years, everything will be all right, you'll, you'll be fine. No, it's like losing an arm or a part of yourself. The only one who could fill that void is gone. And uh, can, you know, fill that sense of, of absence or loss of, uh, a loss of hope of identity and uh, you know and I think that's true on, on so many different ways in, in, in people's lives you know, where we feel that we've lost something that's irreparable and that it is and can be held in and through Christ and who there's nothing that is lacking all right we're gonna move on it's rambling here the whole point of the Lord's memorial is such communion. No more complete communion exists than that which Christ established between himself and those who believe in him. Of course, its perfection is one-sided, for we remain locked in egotism. So it is one-sided, and I think humbly we have to acknowledge that, that God comes to us, he reveals himself to us, even makes up for what is lacking in us, can overcome that egotism, that often we are self-centered, and the self becomes our little idol, our God, and everything revolves around the self. And it is God, in the end, who can overcome that, you know, to dis help us to displace the self, or at least the false self, in order to allow the truth self to emerge in relationship to the other, to God. That is where we discover our truest identity as human beings. The relation of the believer to his Lord is a pure I-thou relation. Just as one redeemed is related to the freedom of the children of God, the Redeemer comes in a particular way that embraces every conceivable degree of person-to-person -person encounter and mutual fulfillment. This concept continues even to the startling second concept in which the flesh and blood of him who knew himself to be the life is offered as nourishment for men. Both concepts are threatened, the first by an all too personal sentimentality, the second by the impersonal, if not in, inhuman magical. History proves that both dangers have frequent, frequently become uh, realized. Uh, Christ is not only the life, he is also the truth. He is the incarnate Logos, God's message written in flesh and blood. His self-offering is revelation. To receive him is to receive the truth. And if you want to underline anything in this reflection, it would be this slide. His self-offering is revelation. To receive him is to receive the truth. 
So outside of this, it can be an ultra-personal sentimentality. So we can approach our relationship with Christ in the way that we approach any other kind of relationship. We can romanticize it, in other words, rather than allowing it to be what it is, God making himself known to us, his creatures, in this profound way that is beyond understanding. Or it can become, as he says, inhuman, magical, magical. So we can stop, and I think this is even true for a lot of Catholics, we can stop stop seeing the Eucharist as this intimate encounter with, with the other. And we can simply go to Mass every Sunday to receive something. And we can do that out of habit and as part of a herd. Everybody's going up to receive something at the altar. And uh, yet without discerning who it is that they receive. And Paul warns against this. All the way, already in the very early church, they were engaging in the, the practice of the Holy Eucharist in such a way that it was making distinctions among members of the community, uh, especially, you know, the poor were being, being treated well, that they were having these meals before the Eucharist itself where there was this great discrepancy. Some had very little, others had much. And so instead of there being a real communion between them, a kind of disunity began to emerge among them. And so when it came then to receiving the Holy Eucharist, they had already distorted the radical communion that Christ had come to establish between himself and others and between that we would have with each other as well. They already were forgetting the, the nature of what that union with each other was supposed to be, be in, in Christ. And so these are two important things to, to, to uh, uh, sort of protect our, ourselves from. And the, the latter, I think, is really, it's, in, it's interesting and sad. I think uh, we can enter into a cultural kind of Catholicism where people do go to Mass because, and we're even moving away from that, I think. People, you know, even when they are raised Catholic, stop going at some point. But there still is something of that mentality that you go to church on Sunday as a Catholic and you receive Holy Communion. And we're even at that point where the state of one's soul or the preparedness is really not part of the equation. It's this is what Catholics do. And so you go up and receive Holy Communion. And the same thing sort of happens at Palm Sunday. Something new is being, something new is being given out, Palm Branch, or even Ash Wednesday. You know, I'm going to get my ashes on my forehead, which on some level doesn't make sense because we're, we're treating that as sort of a positive sign when in reality it's not. And sometimes the ashes will be received, but we, you know, many do not stay around for the celebration of the Eucharist and receive he who is life. So we acknowledge the, the death that sin has brought into the world, our mortality, remember your dust and to dust you shall return. And then, well, I got my ashes, that establishes my Catholic identity, and I, I'm prepared for Lent and I leave the church. And then I take a photo that says hashtag. And when it touches something like the Eucharist, it becomes a profoundly uh, sad thing because it becomes a loveless relationship at that point where Christ is being treated as an object. 
And in a very real sense, we have to see that we are doing violence to Christ to receive him in, in such a way. A violence that would be akin to that of the cross itself. You know, to receive him and to take for ourselves the life that he pour, pours out on the cross in love. He allows himself to be broken and poured out in love for us. Often we go and rather than receiving that humbly and acknowledging the gift of it, we'll take it for ourselves as if it is something Oh. And in that sense, we do do violence to him and to the body of, of the church as a whole because of this radical communion and solidarity that exists between us. And I think this is why Paul speaks so fiercely about it. You know, if you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink to your own condemnation. And I think he's talking there both about the body of Christ present in the Eucharist, but the body without discerning the unity, the oneness that we share now in Christ. If, if you eat and receive the Holy Eucharist but treat others without love, then you eat and drink to your condemnation because you're treating whoever it is, not like Christ, but you know, just the opposite. Any thoughts or comments? Yes. So, um, so when you were speaking about it's important to receive our God with uh, purity of heart and uh, purity of intention. Um, for those of us who are not always ready to receive him that way, or sometimes we may forget whom we are receiving, what has actually happened, when we are receiving the host. Um, then you are talking about Catholics, you know, for whom it is just a habit to go to Sunday Mass and to see our Lord there. And they're not even thinking about him in that way. If we're not fully and completely prepared, or even if there's a lot of ignorance in this area, is it better to abstain from receiving our Lord in the Holy Eucharist? Or is it better to continue to do so? Because when we receive him, we receive him. To receive him is to receive the truth, so that brings us healing in our ignorance. At what point is it better to abstain from receiving him rather than to receive from him? Allow him to help us. To Very us. beautiful question. I think even in the question you provide something of the answer. That there, it is a healing sacrament. And so to receive the Eucharist, like very much going to confession, there is something healing about that. Make it's making up for what is lacking in us, you know, our our, our capacity to love, or our capacity to see the truth, or even uh, our our reverence, you know, in some ways. And so uh, there may be ways where we, you know, are somewhat distracted. And but have sought to prepare ourselves as well as possible, but we would still receive understanding that God gives us this gift in order to heal us and to increase our devotion, our love, by drawing us more and more deeply into it. But I, I think we have also gotten to a point where the idea of, of discerning the state of our heart and whether or not we are prepared to enter in this, into this most intimate of relationship is an act of consummation. Christ giving himself to his bride, the church, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so we would want, I would think, to be as prepared as we possibly can be, understanding that that's the nature of it, that uh, at least that we are striving 
you know, in some way. I don't think what is being asked for is perfection, but that we are striving to live the life and striving to uh, prepare ourselves to receive and to receive as well as possible. And if we've fallen into, you know, particularly grave sins, we've gone to confession to prepare ourselves spiritually to do so. Uh, but I think in some sense that's dropped off a little bit. The sense of the significance of what, of what is taking place there, the, the nuptial imagery, that just as we would say that, you know, what takes, between, uh, uh, takes place between a husband and wife is sacred. You know, it takes place within the context of the vow, this complete and absolute commitment to each other. And it takes place within the context of that relationship with each other. And so if the husband is out and being unfaithful, you know, in the relationship, uh, or that he's been abusing or treating treating his wife with abuse, we would say that it would be a distortion for him to come home and to expect then to enter into, to consummate that relationship, and that it would be an act of violence in some way, because there is no love, love there, and no mutuality. And and so I think in a similar way, we we would look at the receiving of the Holy Eucharist, that we would want to make sure that there is love in our heart, and that there is faith, and that we are making an act of goodwill and entering into this relationship. And again, it's not a, so much about perfection as it is the state of our heart, the love, the faith there. We always are going to know our own weaknesses, and many of those weaknesses we bring, we receive the Holy Eucharist to be healed. That's the ordinary way for us, in fact, to have our sins cleansed, uh, in particular our venial sins. So you have sins of fault or, or human weakness. Uh, but when we are discerning on some level that I haven't thought about Christ in days and you know I've, I was all over the place and you know and ran into to mass 10 minutes late you know and you know I was you know, looking around and it comes time for the Holy Eucharist I might say to myself you know there is a value in going to mass there's grace that's comes to us by being present. But am I really prepared to enter into this most holy communion at that moment? And there might be times that we say to ourselves, I'm not. You know, in all all honesty, not in scrupulosity, but the sense that I have not prepared my heart for that, for that particular moment. And you think what weight there is then put upon the priest who is responsible for celebrating the Mass on a day-to-day basis. How he's living his life, and we've talked about this before, of living from Eucharist to Eucharist. We receive and embrace the grace that is given to us. We seek to allow it to strengthen us and to foster virtue within us, to conform us to Christ until we receive it again at the Holy Altar. And that a priest, in some way, should be living that in in a very radical way, knowing that he is going to have to celebrate Mass at certain times. And so he has to be a man of prayer, of humility, one who goes to confession regularly, frequently. John Paul II, we know, often went daily 
because not only the weight of his priesthood, but the weight of being Pope, you know, is such an enormous thing that he knew that the grace of God, you know, that in so many ways he would be falling short of that high calling. And that uh, how easily pride could creep into that uh, position. And so knowing that he would have to protect himself and need all the grace that he possibly forget that he would seek to prepare his mind and his heart on a daily basis. And so I wouldn't want people to have this, you know, sense of, you know, scrupulosity that would prevent us from going when we should go, or when the Eucharist would be the source of healing for a source of strength. You know, because we often go through trials, <coughs> excuse me, trials and difficulties of life that in receiving the Holy Eucharist, it helps us to make our way through them, gives us the strength. Uh, even to fight with our own weaknesses, where it would be appropriate for us to receive. But we, we want to need to do that, you know, with eyes wide open, you know, again, understanding everything the Guardian is saying here, so that it might bear the greatest fruit possible for us. Good question. Yes. So then it wouldn't necessarily be wrong to go up and receive. Maybe if even we were very distracted during Mass, but it would be a matter of personal discernment. Right. One would want to seek to form one's conscience and form it in light of the spiritual tradition, uh, spiritual direction, all those things, so that one can be looking at one's heart saying, you know, is this because I'm fatigued, you know, and I'm struggling to be attentive, but. Uh, nonetheless, I came here with the desire for the Lord and the desire to receive the whole Eucharist. And so the person can say, yes, you know, in fact, I probably need it now more than, not more than ever. So that's what I'm saying. I wouldn't want people to fall into a kind of scrupulosity about it in the sense of anxiety, but rather understanding the, the weight and the significance of what we are doing at that moment. And I think that's what Guardini's been doing with us the whole time. I, yeah, I, I just continue, I don't know, it's something about that one sentence. I just continue to be very interested in the insistence on truthfulness in relationships. And, um, and it's sort of convicting me about the necessity of, to put it in like kind of a current way of sort of fact checking our relationships with Christ and with others. Um, and I'm thinking about the number of times I hear, and I hear it in the context of people's relationship with the Lord, where it's, it's not so much a matter of them making it a personal relationship as like a personalized, like just how, just how I kind of like it and how, you know, and then with other people and people will say, oh, well, it works for them. You know, and we say that a lot. Um, and we say it about people's relationship with the Lord. And we say it in their relationships with each other all the time. Like, oh, well, you know, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem quite right. But, hey, you know, like it works for them. They seem okay. And it's like, well, but it's not okay. Like just because it works for us, because we've somehow become accustomed to a distorted utilitarianism where we found a way to make our fallen relationships work like that doesn't that's not okay and maybe fact checking is just another way of saying like examining um and like delving into the truthfulness but it's it's interesting to me to consider that there would be an 
there would be an obligation to reject the idea of like, well, it seems to work. And and like a pursuit of truth in in every relationship. Well, I think you know, God in his mercy does this for us. I mean, when we receive Holy Communion, if what he is saying is true, that we receive meaning, we receive truth, that's going to illuminate various parts of our mind and our heart and help us along that path. You know, reveal truths not only of God's self to us, but reveal parts of our, ourselves to us where we come to see who we are in reality in light of Christ. And so he provides for what is lacking and will help us along this path. Now, we can get to uh, a point you know, where that hard spot that Gordini talks about becomes very hard. You know, by pride in particular, where we become impervious to receiving that truth. And that's why we see Jesus hammering so hard against the Pharisees at times, because even though they were lived these objectively religious lives, that there was this very hard spot because of their pride, where they weren't able to receive the uh, life love and mercy who was standing for them. They could not see and would not see and acknowledge their own need for forgiveness. And so couldn't receive what he was giving to them. And so it wasn't as though he was, you know, was just being mean and cruel to them. I think he was trying to open them up to, to see that truth and allow a relationship of truth to emerge, which was much easier for those who knew their poverty you know, Matthew, the tax collector, didn't have to be told that he was a creep and that he was using his own people for his own financial gain. Because everybody in the town let him know that. He would have been scorned by his fellow Jews and he would have lived in isolation. No, no, no Jew would, like, have, would have had dinner or any business dealings with him because... Basically, what he was doing was stealing from them in order to make an income for himself. Because remember, tax collectors, the way they made their money, they weren't, weren't given a salary. They were told, you collect this amount of money, and then whatever above and beyond that you collect for your taxes is yours to keep. So that sort of fostered criminality. They would fleece people and put taxes on all kinds of things in order to raise their own income. That's how they got so rich. And so he would have known the truth of his own poverty. And so I think when Jesus says, you know, come follow me, when truth himself stands before Matthew and, you know, tells him to follow him, he's able to drop it and leave it behind because he knew the truth of his own poverty. He might have all the money in the world, but he probably knew the profound void within and having Ego's life and truth and love standing before him would have been compelling. I think that's why we see certain individuals in the Gospels drop everything and follow follow after him. He wasn't even preaching to them at that point. He was the very person of Christ that was compelling enough to lead them to do that. Okay, we're moving on. Once again, we must consult the commentary to the institution of the Eucharist. 
Jesus speech at Capernaum. So Jesus himself is his own commentary, and the commentary on his own words. The crowds have experienced the miracle of the loaves, and they press about him expectantly. Now surely the miraculous bounty of the messianic kingdom will be poured out. Jesus says to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, you seek me, not because you have seen signs that reveal divine truth, but because you have eaten the loaves and have been filled. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for that which endures unto life everlasting, which the Son of Man will give you. The people do not understand, so Jesus speaks more clearly. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, give us always this bread. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The life he speaks of is his own. The bread by which it is nourished is himself. But how is that bread to be given and received? All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. In other words, it will be given through living contact with him who is the truth. On the one hand, through the radiance of all he is and says and does and suffers. On the other, through our coming to him and believing and seeing. What does one see? The divine figure of the Lord in which the abundance of the invisible world breaks through. St. John says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is to take place then is the revelation of truth through God and the acceptance of that sacred truth by men. Then the concept shifts. Again, he says, I am the bread of life. But he adds, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. This is so novel and unheard of that scandal sets in. Hasn't he himself insisted again and again that the bread is his living flesh, that the eating is true eating? Only the manner of that eating and drinking, namely, in the spirit, remains mysteriously veiled. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Christ has given his hearers the clue, but they refuse it. So, he emphasizes over and over again, I am the bread of life. And he doesn't back away uh, from teaching them that his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink, even when a group of them walk away and they're scandalized by this. But there's something more, he says here, that is given even than what he's talking about. And this is where Gardini says, he has given the hearers a clue in what he just said there. It is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing. So in and through our reception of him, we also receive the spirit of truth that we are told searches even the depths of God. And at the end of the gospel, it says the spirit will be given to you. He who leads you into all truth. 
So what they are not picking up on, and the clue that he's given, giving to them, is that in and through this communion, it's also a communion in the spirit. The spirit that will draw them into the very essence of God. In a way, again, that they can't comprehend, and again, refuse it, because it seems so outrageous to them. The coherence of the speech as a whole is immeasurably important. Christ's memorial is an act of genuine sharing in his vital existence. It is not meant to be spiritualized or volatilized, for it is genuine eating and drinking, though in all the dignity, breadth, power, and significance of the truth. To put it bluntly, Christ offering himself as nourishment cannot be eaten like a piece of bread which is received and become part of our own body, whether we are aware of its essence or not. The Lord has just said of this act, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The one who offers us himself is not any parcel of reality, but the universal logos. I just want to pause there for a second. It's not any parcel of reality. So, He's not just giving us this small piece of bread, and even this small piece of bread in which he is present, but something far greater here, that we can, in our own limited understanding, parcel parcel him out, you know, in, uh, in, in a way that uh, is really being guided by our own sensibilities and understanding, as if somebody were handing us you know, a piece of bread where if it was bigger, it's better, if it's smaller, it's less, you know, for us. And so, you know, Cordini is saying this is a distortion. That what we receive is the universal logos. The nourishment of his body is eternal, holy truth. And consequently, the participation in it requires recognition of that truth. Otherwise, it profits nothing. So that we are receiving God. We are receiving the fullness of the truth and receiving the Eucharist. And if we do not understand this, as we approach the altar and we receive the host and say, Amen, we are saying Amen to that full reality that has made himself present to the world, but has even made himself smaller, has become our very food and drink. All of this meaning, logos, we, we receive into our, our very being, the fullness of divine truth. And so, you know, we can't make it small. We, we, we all, you know, our vision of God is always much less than what God is. And even our understanding then of the Eucharist can be much smaller than what it is and what God is offering to us. Now we can have some concept again that there's something special that we are receiving here, that we're even receiving our Lord, but not having a sense of what we are receiving. Meaning, divine truth we are receiving in the Holy Eucharist. And that's an extraordinary thing for us to think about as human beings. We, we know our limitations, not only our sins and our weaknesses, but our finite intellect and understanding, we are entering into communion and receiving truth itself. Not a truth, but divine truth. 
And on, on some level, this probably should make us tremble a, a little bit, just a little bit. You know, if we really were understanding what's taking place at that altar, I think our, our clarity of focus and the demeanor of the whole congregation would probably be radically different. And even how we would listen to the word as it's proclaimed, and then listen to it as it's preached, all that would be our preparing and almost growing in hunger for what we are receiving then in the Holy Eucharist, knowing that what is being proclaimed is just being proclaimed. We are going to receive, receive in its fullness in the, in, the, in the Holy Eucharist. And so the way we receive, one can understand why the church, you know, has done things in the way that it has, you know, that we don't go up and snatch the host for ourselves. We create a throne or we kneel down and we, we don't even deign to touch, we receive on the tongue. You know, that there is a, an appropriate way of receiving, understanding the weight of the mystery that we are being drawn into. And so we, we want to avoid a kind of casualness, I think, in our participation in the Mass. And by that, I don't mean you can't wear uh, what are those called? Chinos or, you know, uh, khakis. You can't, <laughs> you can't wear khakis or, or something like that. But we can't be so informal in attitude. You remember Gordini talking at the beginning of our reflections about composure, that, you know, we're approaching this mystery with our minds and hearts prepared in such a way that, you know, it's not slack and informal, that we know that we are drawn, being drawn into the deepest mystery of our life as human beings. And what's going on in our heart should be reflective of that. And not just at that moment, I think in our, our life as a whole, you know, our, our experience of God from the incarnation on has changed radically. To participate in Holy Mass means to recognize Christ as the Logos, Creator and Redeemer. As often as you shall do these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. Remembrance here does not mean only do this to commemorate me. It means in addition, while doing this, think of me, of my essence, my tidings, my destiny. All of these are the truth. It is not by accident that the essential action of the Mass is preceded by the Epistle and Gospel for each of the sacred texts is a clue to Christ's identity, is some facet of his personality or truth, some event in his life that comes forward to be understood and accepted. Each is a ray of that truth, which will be present at the consecration no longer in word, but in his very, in his real existence no longer in word alone, so not no longer in the spoken word that we hear audibly, but becomes present to us through its existence in, in the host and that that we receive. It is of primary importance that we see truth's relation to the mass. Piety is inclined to neglect truth, not that it shuns it or shies away from it, but it is remarkable how readily piety slides off into fantasy, sentimentality, and exaggeration. Legends and devotional books offer only too frequent and devastating proof of this. 
Unfortunately, piety is inclined to lose itself in subjective, in the subjective, to become musty, turgid, unspiritual. Divine reality is never any of these, never falsely spiritual in the sense of the vaporous, the unsubstantial. Divine reality, which is another name for truth, remains as divinely substantial as the living Jesus who walked the earth. But it must be illumined by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So our sentimentality and our piety can be sort of creative on its own and can create a kind of experience of Jesus that is more of a projection of our own internal world. And this is why the church has always been very cautious about not only certain forms of piety uh, that arise in different generations, but also things like particular visions or locutions that individuals might have. Because sometimes those things can become, come from a place that is deeply personal to a individual, an individual, and uh, that it is a reflection of their identity, their perception of things. It might hold some truth in it, but it can also hold, hold a lot of their personality. And the example I like to give of this is who I love is St. Catherine of Siena, her dialogues, this dialogue that she has with Christ and that is then written down. It's sort of like a colloquy form that we might be uh, familiar with in spiritual writings, but it is was out of her real encounter with Christ, or this engaging her, that then the dialogues come into being. But as you read through that, you really catch sight also of Catherine's personality, that in a lot of what is being said is filtered through her personality, filtered through her self-understanding, her identity, even her understanding of God. It doesn't make it, it doesn't diminish it you know, in the sense of its beauty or its importance for the life of the church. But it does tell us that we have to be careful. And for some people, the writings of St. Catherine of Siena might not speak to the heart in the same way that another spiritual writer's thoughts are going to speak to them. And so we would never say, you know, you have to read this as a Christian, you know, understanding that to be the case. So, one little last bit here. Truth is essential to the fullness of the Mass. It is not enough to harp on the fact that the Mass is the center and content of the Christian's life. It must also be made clear how that center may be reached and that content shared. This is possible only when truth's vital relation to the Eucharist is recognized and when truth permeates the entire act of the sacred celebration. So the Mass is where it all begins for us. You know, that this is our encounter with the truth as God reveals it to us and as we receive it in the Holy Eucharist. And then it is for us to internalize that, to allow ourselves to be transformed by it, and then to communicate it to the world. But the, the Mass is really the, the means, the vehicle through which uh, it is communicated to us. And so our mysticism as Catholic Christians is always sacramental. And, and in many ways, it's primarily Eucharistic. But this is how 
God has revealed himself to us. It's incarnational, one should say. But in the Eucharist is the source and summit of that experience, that this is how God has revealed himself to us, has chosen to give us his life and love, but also to reveal his truth to us, his very essence to us, that we receive it into our very being. And so we don't need to go searching around for some you know, mystical experience or something to shape our spiritual life. It is given to us you know, as Roman Catholics in, in the sacramental life. It is this that should above all shape our experience of God, as well as our understanding of ourself in relationship to him and to each other. And so long as we stay close to the Eucharist, I think we also preserve ourselves from falling into air or being drawn into air. And we see it's even possible here, the sentimentality or exaggeration that he talks about, unless we have this clarity of understanding. But having this kind of Eucharistic mysticism, you know, or this way that we encounter and experience God is what keeps us from going stray in the spiritual life. It's what shapes and directs our path. So again, living from Eucharist to Eucharist becomes sort of an apt way of viewing our life. You know, living in this constant communion, ever seeking to deepen that communion and union with, with Christ. Yes? Did Gordini write this book expecting that he would be communicating it to the masses? Uh, my understanding is that that's true, but the There's thing a lot smarter Catholics back then. Well, you know, it's it's a curious thing because he was, as I mentioned, he was writing this in the nineteen forties, and when I read this, it seems like this is written for our generation. You know, in the sense of this is what should have taken place from the Second Vatican Council on, you know, are penetrating more and more deeply into the mysteries of our faith and understanding them and being able to articulate them, but more being able to live them fully. I think what the church saw taking place in the generations leading up to the council was already this kind of herd mentality, you know, that, uh, that people were, you know, receiving communion, but not really participating or hearing the prayers, you know, or even hearing, you know, uh, you know, homilies very frequently, all, all this kind of stuff, you know, a lot. Uh, we, we have a tendency to idealize the past, to romanticize the past. And, but there, I think there was a reason that there that was the, the council. And I think because some of the problems that we experience now pre-existed, the council and even the way that priests would say mass you know that they would say it in latin but sometimes it would be they would do it very quickly mumbling their words and not really being attentive to what was being said and i think part of the council was that we were supposed to go back to the sources just like cordini is doing here going back to the sources themselves to scripture itself in order to unpack it so that we might participate as fully as possible that we might not be these passive observers, but really those upon whom the Eucharist has this powerful impact. So I'm always shocked that he wrote back in the 40s because there's a quality to it. It's like he's speaking, he's who our generation needs to hear. In fact, one of our seminarians, Thomas, says, 
tossed to mind. The deacon says that one of his professors says that he he's shocked how underread Gordon is because he feels that he's one of the, the, the best writers prior to the council in terms of his articulation of the faith. And in particular, the things that he writes about liturgy. So if you have the opportunity to read some other works of his, it would be worth your while. It does seem like that's something really providential. I mean, he has other beautiful works, but there's just something about this one in particular where it's like you can you can read it and say, what's happened to the church isn't because what ha- what the Vatican what Second Vatican Council asked for was done and look at the failure it is it's like what's happening in the church is because it was never done like it's like the problem isn't the council the problem is no one listened to the council and that's how we got into the same mess because you can read it it's 80 years since he wrote this and that's a pretty long amount of time and it's like there's just nothing nothing has changed yeah he did he did the work and I think the problem with us is that we often don't do the work that is necessary. And he wrote another book called The Lord, which is pretty well known, where he goes through the mysteries of Christ's life, very much like Fulton Sheen does. I think he has a book entitled something similar. Uh, but he goes through all the mysteries. So did uh, Columba Marmion, who is an exquisite writer. And again, one of those that's overlooked, I think, uh, this beautiful, clear writer but does the same thing. There's a book called Christ in His Mysteries, uh, which goes through Christ's life and, you know, from the incarnation on, and this, like, deep reflection that is very similar to what we see in little pieces here in Guardini's Reflection on the Mass when he brings that kind of stuff in. So I, any of the, either of those writers would really... Uh, enrich your spiritual reading. And I think uh, Fulton Sheen, too, is another one, where there's this enduring quality to their writing. Did you agree? I just would, uh, who was the, uh, the second writer besides uh, Fulton Sheen? Columba Marmion. He was a, a monk, a Benedictine monk, and wrote these wonderful works on the spiritual life, his correspondence about the spiritual life with others, but he's also this great writer on theology in such a way that it is readable and accessible like Guardini, but not watered down and substantial. So any one of those would be very fun. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Um, I'm not sure I understood correctly, but uh, I believe you said that for us as uh, Roman Catholics, our mysticism is deeply Eucharistic, that we receive the truth through our sacramental life. How about the, those of other rites within the Catholic Church, and how about the Orthodox? Yeah, we would say that this is what we, we share in common with them. And so, you know, our, our relationship with Eastern rites, of course, you know, there's a union there, you know, that there's, you know, they're the same experience and, and spirituality. The way that it's, uh, the, the rite expresses it is, is unique, you know, coming from their particular cultures, but beautiful, and they hold all that we believe. And the Orthodox, in, in many ways, too, you know, in terms of their understanding of the incarnation, priesthood, the church, Eucharistic life. 
know, that they, they would hold those fundamental things. I think the further you get away uh, from this into some of the, the Protestant communities, you know, certainly that there, they have a lot that we do, the scriptures, a lot of the scriptures, faith, you know, that we share a lot in common with them. But I think there is often this lack of an incarnational uh, spirituality and theology. You know, their understanding of the nature of the incarnation, how this changes the way that we experience and encounter God, and that this is an enduring reality for us, that when Christ ascends to heaven, the experience of this radical, concrete, uh, tangible experience of, of God the King Incarnate does not cease, it continues on in and through his body, the church, and all that Christ did in his life is made manifest through the, the sacramental life. And so, you know, growing up Presbyterian myself, you know, we had the scriptures and we had, you know, the liturgy of the word and every Sunday there was preaching, but it ended there. But I had no experience of the, the Eucharist, other than a couple times of the year, but it was, you know, the little cracker and the little shot glass of grape juice, and it wasn't believed to be the real presence of Christ. 